If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Wanted to get to the other big story of the day here in Alberta concerning the future of education. Now, the idea of reviewing and updating the curriculum is, is certainly there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but obviously, you know, it, it, what, what matters is the details and I suppose the impulse. What is it that the government sees as a shortcoming in the existing curriculum? What are they looking to change? So the idea of change is uh, not inherently bad, but it's a question of what do you see as the problem? What do you see as the solution? Uh, CBC News obtained uh, a leak of some drafts. This is uh, directly from the curriculum advisors appointed by the government. They are recommending changes to the kindergarten to grade four curriculum that, for example, would eliminate all references to residential schools, would remove all references to the concept of equity. Some of the proposed changes, seven and eight-year-olds would learn about feudalism, Chinese dynasties, Homer's Odyssey. Uh, five and six-year-olds in grade one would be expected to be familiar with the artwork of Claude Monet, George O'Keefe, Pablo Picasso. They also say first graders should learn Bible verses about creation as poetry. Fourth graders should learn that most non-white Albertans are Christians. Curriculum experts familiar with the province's process say the suggestions are a big departure from where work was headed before the party was elected in 2019. So what do we make of these proposed changes? And again, these are just proposals, recommendations uh, to the education minister, but these are the advisors that uh, they handpicked to come up with these changes. So it would be one thing for the minister to say, well, I don't like this or I don't like that, but where does that leave us? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on uh, what this all represents, both in terms of the possible direction of Alberta's curriculum and and the minister herself, very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Carla Peck joins us, education expert uh, at the University of Alberta, professor of social studies education uh, at the U of A. Joins us on the line here this afternoon. Professor Peck, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so were you caught by surprise, uh, first of all, when you saw this today, or did you have some inkling that maybe things were moving in this direction? Um, well, I definitely had some inkling that things were moving in this direction when the Minister of Education um, confirmed, I guess it was again Janet French's story, confirmed the appointment of the various people um, who were being lined up to provide advice and consult on those hand-picked folks that you mentioned. And um, uh, yes, when uh, Chris Champion was appointed to provide advice on the social studies curriculum, immediately knowing uh, Mr. Champion's background and previous writings, I was immediately concerned that um, those would be reflected in the proposed changes. And unfortunately, those uh, worries have been confirmed. 
Now, at this point, I don't know if we've heard directly from the education minister. I haven't seen anywhere that, that she has responded, but we, we've got some response from the government or at least some, some spokespeople that these are just recommendations, nothing's been decided. Uh-huh. And presumably, if, if, if the minister is going to say something similar, what, what do you make of that as a, as a defense here at this point? Well, uh, I actually don't believe that to be the case. Uh, Folks that I know who are um, involved uh, in the department um, have been told that they're supposed to faithfully implement these changes that have been recommended. So, you know, I think the spokespeople and perhaps the minister, although as you say, she hasn't publicly commented uh, to date that I've seen, um, have perhaps been caught off guard that these documents have been leaked. And so they're, they're trying to reassure people, but um, I don't have much faith in their comments. What stands out to you? And, and there, there's a lot of proposed changes here, and, and maybe some of it's more concerning than, than other aspects. Uh, but what, what, what have you seen so far that concerns you the most? Mm-hmm. Well, as you say, there's, there's so much to unpack here. But um, the, the, maybe the foundational orientation to the curriculum, um, you know, this dates back decades and decades. It, we, we, you might call it uh, a term that's used in curriculums, social efficiency model of curriculum development. This approach dates back to the early 1900s and then has sort of continued over time. But it's a programmed curriculum, you might say, that's supposed to result in very specific learned behaviors. So if you think of a factory line that produces the same product over and over again, um, it assumes that every child is the same and therefore students' interests don't matter. It disregards important factors such as students' cultural identities, learning difficulties, and it's all about conforming to a very narrow version of what makes someone a useful member of society. Um, And this whole approach to curriculum development doesn't value learning for its own sake. And you can see this reflected in the the philosophy that's laid out in the first two pages of the K to two, kindergarten to grade two document, where, uh, you know, there's repeated references to the importance of memorization. Um, you know, and the the document even lays out by grade two, students should memorize four dates, grade three, 14, by grade four, another 18, and so on. And, uh, you know, this just contradicts 40 or more years of research on how students learn in social studies. It's just absolutely ridiculous that this would be, you know, uh, an approach that would be um, sanctioned by the government and it's based on an outdated belief that students have to store up knowledge before they can engage in complex thinking. Does there seem like there's some, some political or ideological motivation at play here? Well, I have argued in the past that yes, absolutely. I mean, the the current government campaigned on a education platform to, you know, sort of quoting, paraphrasing here, but to rid the curriculum of quote, left-wing ideology, but really what they're doing is just replacing an ideology that they don't agree with, with uh, their own right-wing conservative ideology. Um, And it just comes through loud and clear in this document. I mean, the idea that you would, one of the other big concerns, you asked me about concerns, Mm -hmm. that they would remove references to um, uh, residential schools, that they would reduce the study of uh, Indigenous peoples to a few facts and dates and names, um, but very much relegating the history of Indigenous peoples 
um, and the well, the any content about Indigenous peoples to the past, as if we don't, uh, as if there aren't Indigenous peoples living today and in our society and have making incredible contributions to our society today. I mean, it's just uh, it's shocking. You know, and you know, the Alberta government, the Ministry of Education, several years ago, along with the Alberta Teachers Association, signed an agreement with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation just after the, the calls to action came out to say, you know, this is something that we're going to prioritize in our curriculum development. And this is a complete backtracking. It's slap in the face to that. So, what can the minister possibly say or do at this point? Um, what what would you like to hear from her, or do you, do you think at this point, do you, do you think maybe that, that she needs to own this, and that maybe maybe she shouldn't be the minister anymore? I do think she needs to own this, and I don't think she should be the minister. I think she needs to resign. This is um, complete incompetence in my mind, and it's certainly not the first um, example of, of incompetence from this minister, and... Um, you know, if if she's not going to do that, and if Premier Kenny isn't going to replace her, then the next immediate step uh, should be to meet with Indigenous communities in Alberta, and not just lip service meetings, but real meaningful conversation to include teachers in the process of curriculum development, and to dismiss Chris Champion from his role as providing any advice whatsoever. Well, in terms of the motivation behind this leak, maybe it was meant as a trial balloon. Maybe there's somebody on the inside who who doesn't like where things are going. Do you, do you think there's some silver lining in, in this coming out now, if indeed it sort of shames the government into to going in a different direction? Uh, that would be the one silver lining in this. And I have no idea about motivations or how this came to pass, but, um, you know, in terms of these being made uh, public, but um, that is the one silver lining that um, I think people need to make their concerns heard and not let this um, uh, go under the radar and just sort of uh, slip into being and existing. Uh, like so, There's so many things um, drawing our attention away from things that matter, but this is something that we, I mean, this will affect a generation of, of students, you know, um, because curriculum don't change that quickly. So uh, this will affect a generation of kids, uh, potentially, um, and uh, we, can't, um, we can't afford to, to not speak up about our concerns. Right. Well, I suppose we'll, we'll find out at some point uh, what the minister has to say, and we'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dr. Beck, appreciate your insight on this. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Thanks very much for the call. All right, take care. Okay, uh, that is uh, Dr. Carla Pack, uh, Professor of uh, Social Studies Education at the University of Alberta Department of Elementary Education, and someone who's written at great length before. We've spoken with her before about Alberta's curriculum and uh, where it's headed. And, uh, yeah, the, these are some unusual changes, to say the least. Uh, I don't know how some of these changes actually make education any better. If your argument is that it was ideological before and it's just going to be a different kind of ideology, I don't know that that's uh, an improvement either. So, yeah, I, I look, I, I do think it is important for the education minister to to own this, to be upfront about all of this and, and to share her thoughts on all of this. This is coming directly from the people that were handpicked to do this review. 
And if she doesn't have faith in the work they're doing, then something needs to be done. If she does, then she needs to own it and, and speak to this and defend this. And at the moment, we're not getting either. So an example of some of the challenges Albert is facing at the moment when it comes to COVID-19. And, you know, we, we've heard health officials talk about a number of public gatherings uh, or private gatherings, rather, that have been uh, linked to some outbreaks. Uh, one in particular, Alberta Health says a wedding in Calgary earlier this month has led to 49 active COVID-19 cases and counting. So apparently this wedding had large numbers of Albertans from different households uh, coming together for this event. And sure, I, understandable that, uh, you know, a wedding's a big deal, um, an important family moment, but... You know, it's, it's also the, the kind of environment where this, this virus can really thrive. So Alberta Health uh, contact tracers trying to still track down cases that might be connected to this event. So that number might might still grow. So when we're seeing these events, maybe it's not a surprise that we're seeing those case counts continue to increase. 898 new cases over the three days uh, of this past weekend. Number of active cases now over 3,100, the highest it's been. At any point in this pandemic, the number of hospitalizations at 117. That was unchanged from Friday, but still at its highest level of this pandemic. So are we now into a, a second wave? How concerned should we be about the trajectory uh, of the pandemic here in Alberta? Well, joining us uh, for some further thoughts uh, on all of this, very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, uh, Dr. Craig Jenny is at the uh, University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases. Dr. Jenny, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rob. Uh, let me ask you first of all, and, and you know, about a month ago, I, and I think it was fair to say that, you know, Alberta was not in what we would describe as a, a second wave yet, but what we've seen in, in recent weeks, uh, I don't know, has your view on that changed? I think so. I mean, I think it's difficult to paint the entire province with one brush, but we've definitely seen a, a steep uptick in cases uh, a little earlier in Edmonton and then last uh, Friday, Calgary being put on the watch list. So all the signs are pointing towards viral growth in, in our community, and we're seeing you know a significant increase in numbers over the last couple of weeks. So this really is, is a, a second round of infection, whether we want to call it a second wave or not. Um, there is clear transmission and, and increased virus in our community right now. Well, we see that uh, certainly in, in the positivity rate on these tests uh, that we're, we're now over 2%, um, which, which certainly indicates, um, you know, more widespread transmission that, that our value, the, the reproduction rate seems to have gone up as well. So what, what are you seeing that's, that's of concern? I think all of those are very, you know, clear indicators we're headed in the wrong direction. And as you pointed out in the introduction, we are now at a record uh, high for hospitalizations. And uh, keeping in mind that hospitalizations also tend to lag the actual numbers by two or three weeks. So we, we unfortunately can almost anticipate additional hospitalizations in the coming weeks. Um, so, you know, these are all concerning numbers that, that really have to be looked at seriously. And we did see with Edmonton uh, sort of the, the introduction of some voluntary guidelines. And I think by putting Calgary on the watch list, that message was also quite clear to the Calgary community that we're going the wrong way and we need to uh, perhaps more strictly adhere to the recommendations that are in place. Yeah, and I think the hope is that this can be a bit of a wake-up call that, that, you know, to a large extent, right, we, we still have the power collectively to, to move this in the right direction. Are, are we still at a point where you think that, 
that that's a reasonable approach? I think so. I think, you know, what we need to do is we need to identify where perhaps these guidelines are falling short. And that may be that the guidelines themselves are adequate, but we're simply not adhering to them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we did have recommendations to try and take things a little easier over Thanksgiving, uh, and, and we're going to see in the next couple of weeks whether whether there was a, a, an impact with that messaging that that did the numbers um, sort of remain stable, or are we going to see a, a viral spread due to Thanksgiving last weekend? And unfortunately, we don't know yet. We're going to be watching that over the next couple of weeks. You know, we, we talk about this wedding and, and this, these kinds of super spreader events. And, you know, I just think, I mean, you know, even just in trying to identify cases associated with this wedding, that, that's a lot of resources that, you know, the more cases we're adding or the more outbreaks we have, the more we're, we're taxing our contact tracing capabilities. You know, certainly testing is, has gone up. Um, it's it's fluctuated a bit over the last couple of weeks, but there's the other side, right? I mean, contact tracing is is a lot of kind of grunt work, detective work, and and it becomes harder the more cases we add, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, the one advantage, if there is an advantage of of contact tracing following this wedding, is that you know who was in the room, you you know yeah. all the people that attended. Uh, you can imagine some of the other uh, outbreaks we've had, you know, much smaller cases. But how do you contact trace? everybody that was on the sea train with you on a given morning or everybody that was at a given restaurant uh, between a, a period of a few days. Many of those people are anonymous. We don't have not only names, but any way to get a hold of them. So yes, contact tracing is becoming, because of our activities in the community, very much uh, uh, more difficult, more time consuming, and unfortunately, uh, perhaps a little less efficient than it was earlier in, in the pandemic. Do you think this, this federal app could, could make a difference? relying more on the on the technological side of things i i think that you know there there's great merit in these apps but i think you know unfortunately we've seen where they fall down as they've been deployed and that is we don't have a universal app across the country uh, we do have uh, the federal app is now adopted by eight provinces but we're not seeing a national uptake which creates a problem that you know if you travel out of province or visitors from outside alberta come to alberta you know we're not basically talking the same technological language. But we've also seen very poor uptake of the apps. I mean, again, contact tracing is only efficient if everybody is in the system. Right. And if 5 or 10% of the people have the app, um, you know, one, the, if you're infected, nobody will know that you came in contact with them unless they have the app installed. But likewise, if somebody else has the app, does test positive, and you don't have the app, then you don't get notified you've been exposed either. So it's both ways. You're, you're trying to protect your neighbor, but also protect yourself. You know, and, and, and looking at, you know, these kinds of super spreader events like this wedding, and, and as you say, at least the wedding, you know, you got a, a list of who was there, who attended, et cetera. That can make it a little bit easier. But, you know, it certainly does speak to, to the inherent risk in these kinds of larger events, both in terms uh, of the number of people who are there, you know, the fact that food is being eaten or, or that, you know, utensils are being shared, et cetera. What, what, is, what is unique about the risk, you know, in these kinds of events and, and how they can potentially become these sort of super spreader events? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, you know, put, put any blame or, or weight directly on, for example, a wedding. But right. often these social events, you know, we, we can have as many rules as, as possible in place. But you can imagine if you're getting together with friends, be it a wedding, you know, anniversary, uh, other celebration, you know, people are not going to be wanting to wear masks during group photos. Uh, right. Obviously, sitting down and eating. So whereas, you know, we do have a lot of restrictions in place for other public areas, malls. Um, even restaurants, you're wearing your mask until such time as you're 
eating, um, these more social gatherings tend to have slightly more laxed rules. And as a result, there is the risk. I think it's important to point out that just because you have a gathering, just because there's a wedding, it doesn't mean everybody's going to get sick. But it does create, as you have pointed out, the, the potential for this. And when a virus does then enter that environment, we run a significant risk of having these large-scale spreading events. Yeah, and, and that's the thing with big family gatherings, you know, you're likely to have, you know, kids, adults, seniors, you know, grandparents, uh, the, you know, the, the whole family coming together for these sorts of events. So, you know, there's that potential risk as well. I, I don't know the situation that all of these 49 cases are, are dealing with, but, you know, that's where, you know, there's there's a concern and, and what a tragedy it would be for, you know, a, a joyous family event to to turn into you know, kind of a, a tragic situation, right? I guess it's something for people to think about. Yeah, unfortunately, and, and we've seen that, uh, you know, there, there was a, a wedding earlier in the summer in the United States in Maine, right along the That's Canadian right, yeah. border, that had over 100 cases and ended up with nearly 12 fatalities. So, yeah, yeah it was a, a time to celebrate that, unfortunately, some people who had underlying conditions or, or older people also were infected. And what was a, a really happy time ended up being a very tragic event. Indeed. Uh, and, and by the way, I just to ask you that, I mean, we talk about, you know, risk versus non-risk and we talk about kids. I know there's a lot of opinions on, on trick-or-treating and a lot of debate about, about yeah. trick-or-treating. I don't know. Where, where do you come down on that question? So, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound as though we're, we're wishy-washy, but, uh, you know, I will fully admit my opinion for trick-or-treating even here in Calgary has probably shifted over the last two or three weeks. Mm-hmm. That, you know, this, these discussions prior to Thanksgiving, the numbers were quite low in the community, and, you know, it's a good outdoor event. Kids maintain some physical separation. Um, it's good mental health, you know, get out and, and uh, you know, just enjoy life as, as we used to. However, over the last month, we've seen cases, you know, slowly tick up, and, and it becomes a, a real, you know, weight of is the benefit worth the potential risk, even if the risk is, is low, is it a risk that we need to take at this particular moment? So, you know, our, our kids, we, we've had a little talk, and, and we're going to uh, watch a few uh, cartoons as a family indoors, and uh, they will get their, their candy quota. Don't worry about that. But, uh, mm-hmm. we, you know, we're going to put it off this year, and, and we yeah. will get back to full-on celebration next year. And, it's you know, this is a personal decision of the family because we do have some people in our cohort at risk, and we, you know, it just didn't seem worth uh, that potential risk for our family. Yeah, that's a good point. We'll, we'll leave it there. Dr. Jenny, I always appreciate the insight, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. You're welcome. Take care, Rod. You as well. Uh, Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the uh, Cummings School of Medicine, University of Calgary. So talking about some of the, the challenges Alberta is facing going forward here, that, that certainly, you know, things have worsened from a couple of weeks ago. You get the sense from, from Dr. Jenny saying, you know, it's not necessarily the time to start to imposing new public health measures, but it's it's something to keep an eye on. And the numbers in, in Edmonton have been of concern. Calgary's seen a, a bit of a spike as of late, too. So hopefully we're still in the realm of, you know, following public health advice, taking, as the Premier puts it, personal responsibility, doing our part, that that's going to be enough to, to turn this in the right direction. Because as, as the Premier said yesterday on this uh, very radio station, that, that if it gets to that point, he is prepared to act in terms of public health restrictions, but obviously hopeful that it doesn't get to that point. Well, certainly it's no secret that this uh, pandemic 
and the associated economic downturn has had a, a severe impact on employment. Employment uh, in in this country, unemployment in this country. I think it's it's back just under ten percent, back in single digits. Although it is uh, still solidly in the double digits here in Alberta. So a lot of jobs were lost early on. We've seen some recovery in, in recent months on the joblessness front. But, of course, as we head into what could be some tough winter months, it's certainly possible that whole situation could erode again. Um, so, yes, there is a problem when it comes to a lack of jobs in Canada. But but beneath all of that, there's another story that, that perhaps deserves some further attention. And it's the impact of long-term joblessness. Now, if you don't have a job, you don't have a job, whether you lost your job a week ago or or seven months ago. But there is a unique challenge that this long-term joblessness creates, and it's a problem within a problem that's getting worse. As noted in a a new research paper from the C.D. Howe Institute, between March and September 2020, the number of Canadians who have been jobless for more than six months increased by 107%. By comparison, in the 2008 financial crisis, we saw that a statistic increase by 37%. So, so this is really an unprecedented challenge. So what do policymakers need to be prepared for? Well, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, this problem and how we address it, very pleased to welcome to the program one of the co-authors uh, of this research piece. Uh, Tammy Sherrill is a research fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute, professor of economics at Wilfrid Laurier University. Professor Scholl, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me today. Uh, talk about, in, from your perspective, why, why it's important to focus on, on long-term joblessness or, or to almost look at it, it separately from the overall question of unemployment. Well, it is a, a slightly different problem in that it persists and, and has different effects than just generally getting laid off and having to get back to work in a, a short time period. You know, normally right now in, in Canada, in normal times, we'd see about 700,000 people who are in this long-term jobless category, right, just searching for work and getting back to work. But with so many people out of work since the pandemic shutdown started last March, we're looking at 1.3 million people who are in this long-term jobless category. They want to get back to work, but they've been out of work for more than six months. And what we know is that the longer people are away from their jobs, the harder it is for them to get back into new jobs again. Not during normal times, but certainly even harder when you have a high unemployment rate. And then we also know that when people do eventually get back to work after a job loss, they're going to have earnings losses, not only the, the money that they lost while they were unemployed, but when they get back to work and they start their new jobs, it's going to be at a lower wage rate than they, they had previously because they're having to start over again in a new career with a new employer. And so on average, you know, people are losing about 20 percent on their wages for several years uh-huh. um, after they come back to work. Yeah, you mentioned, and I guess economists call this negative duration dependence, but the idea of this kind of being a snowballing effect, that the longer you're unemployed, the more likely it is that you're going to remain unemployed, the harder it is to find a job. And so what is it about you know prolonged periods of joblessness that make it that much more difficult to get back in the workforce? Well, it's really hard to pick apart the many pieces that they would play into that. But I think part of it is really just how employers are looking at someone's resume. And we've seen some evidence of that in previous studies where, you know, I think if if you have on your resume that you've been away from work for a very long time, employers are going to wonder why. Why did it take you so long to get back to work? Why didn't somebody already hire you before? As opposed to somebody who's just recently lost their job, right? So they might be imagining, you know, why why you were away so long and thinking very negatively about that. So you're going to be passed up for that job when it does come up. 
as opposed to the person who's just new on the job market and looking for something. So it's things like that that are going to play into this. Now, we're hoping and perhaps optimistic that because people were laid off and kept away for work for reasons obviously beyond their control, right? None of us have control over this pandemic right now. Maybe employers, when we start, when they start opening up and hiring again, are going to look past that a little bit. So we're hoping that that kind of negative duration dependence that we've seen in the past recession isn't going to play out as hard um, as people try to get back into work in this recovery. Uh, Then maybe there's also the possibility that a lot of people will, hopefully, if if all goes well, end up basically back in the jobs they they previously had, that they were laid off from their job, that job will once again exist, or, you know, through programs like the wage subsidy, uh, that people will maybe be able to ease back into those positions. Is, Is there that hope? We, we hope so. We do see that a much larger number than usual in this jobless category are waiting recall. But they've been waiting recall for a very long time. So yeah. you can imagine there's people who were laid off in hospitality and tourism back in March. They're not going to be coming back anytime soon, at least not if these numbers don't get better in terms of the, the COVID cases that we're seeing out there. And so, you know, they, they've been away for six months. I don't think those jobs are going to be opening up anytime soon, but if they do, they will be recalled. There's no guarantee, though, that they will. Those jobs might disappear permanently or at least be away for several months more. Um, So, as you mentioned, some of this is concentrated in in certain sectors, but it also appears to be concentrated among younger workers. And... and is that almost in a way a silver lining here? Is, Is it easier for younger people to bounce back from this? It has been in the past. And again, these are unusual circumstances where we're looking at past recessions to try and guess it's what's going to happen with people. What we've seen in the data is that given the types of jobs where people have been laid off from, it does tend to be younger workers. It tends to be lower wage workers. Um, and, and when we're looking at past studies at who is facing those really big earnings losses and struggling to get back to work, they tend to be your older workers who had very long tenure at their previous jobs. So they had long seniority at their previous jobs, those were the folks who had the most difficulty getting back into the labor force and and dealing with their earnings losses. So to the extent that, you know, unfortunately, the impact has largely been felt by younger people, we can expect them to be able to bounce back a bit better. They also have better opportunities in terms of retraining. Like if they were to take on going back to school right now, maybe taking on some upskilling while they're unemployed, that has a very high return for them going forward, where, you know, the short time period for an older worker would be very different. So in that sense, they they have good options, they have good retraining options, and they're going to have, I hope, an easier time recovering from this. Right, which I guess speaks to the question of where where there's a a role for for governments and policymakers to play here. I mean, big picture, obviously, there's a need to improve uh, the the uh, economic prospects uh, that that we're facing to try to spur job creation those sorts of big picture challenges but but uh, more targeted response then and, and maybe helping people get through this period helping with retraining what what do you see as viable policy options here yeah there's definitely some important options they need to take on i mean obviously the the first thing is to keep this virus under control if we want to get these folks back to work we need to create a space where customers want to come in and, and spend their money, right? So that, that's priority number one. But in the meantime, I think there's good opportunities here to find the people who are in these industries where prospects are going to be pretty poor for a very long time, make sure that they have the funds 
to be able to invest in education if that looks like a good op- option for them. Um, there's going to be training in new industries that they might be able to take on. And then for some people, it's really just a matter of helping them figure out how to use the skills they already have and take them to different industries. You know, I often think of, you know, your average server in a restaurant who is incredibly organized and has excellent memory and incredible social skills that can be taken into a variety of jobs, but they're going to need some help figuring out what those jobs are and where they're open because that that Mm -hmm. takes some imagination sometimes and just some knowledge of what's going on in the labor market. And I think those are all things where the government um, has a really clear role to play. Obviously, there's a cost involved in, in that kind of an approach. But, at, you know, at the same time, obviously, there, there's a cost that comes with high unemployment. There's a cost that comes with prolonged joblessness. So how do, how do we look at this? And do we look at it as an investment? I would look at it as, as, an, as an investment. I mean, right now, we could just keep play, paying out um, EI and different economic recovery benefits and try to keep people afloat. Or we can use some of that money to invest in them and help them bring up their skills and make them even more productive so that they become higher wage workers who can help pay for all this debt down the road. Um, I think being able to keep people engaged and improve their options in in the labor market has a long-term payoff, not only for them, but also in terms of taking on the fiscal burden of this pandemic. Well, people can read more. Uh, this uh, paper is online. CDHow.org is the website. Professor Sherrill, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thank you. Take care. That is Tammy Sherrill, Professor of Economics, Wilfrid Laurier University, and uh, co-author of this research paper at the C.D. Howe Institute, CDHow.org, where she is also a research fellow. So looking at, at where this poses a, a unique challenge amongst those who are, are jobless and, and how perhaps you know, some interventions can help bridge that gap for people or or set them up for success. The sooner people can get back into the job market, obviously, the better it is really at the, you know, for them, certainly, but for everybody, right? Governments benefit, taxpayers benefit when unemployment is low. So this can help. Obviously, if we're in a prolonged recession, there's going to only be so many jobs to go around. But, you know, for people who have been unemployed for long stretches, it, it does make it that much more difficult, as this paper notes, to, to find those jobs and perhaps some, some training, giving them some additional skills, something that, that could stand out on, on a resume could go a long way. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.